Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan with Mark. As usual, it is Friday, February the 14th, 2020, Valentine's Day, Mark, and I hope, or maybe I hope not, have you got anything for your lovely wife, Kate, organised, or a card, or, a, or an anonymous bunch of flowers? What's happening? Well, lucky you gave me the heads up before the event, so I could come prepared because um, um, I'm notorious for my wonderful excuse that every day is Valentine's Day, and so I shouldn't do anything to make it special. But I know, Brendan, I know you've given me the drum before. Um, it is important, no matter how much our wonderful partners say, oh, no, it's not. It really is. I'm doing nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and and Daddy has said to me several times, do not get me a card, do not get me anything. Um, we we had our anniversary of, a couple of weeks ago and that's enough. <laughs> that's what she said. So so I'm I'm doing what I'm told, Mark, as usual, you know me. Um so we might um well, actually, I was going to say I'll be getting takeaway from a local Chinese takeaway store that my youngest daughter Sophie works in, as some of our listeners already know. Um, but she won't be working because, as we mentioned off air, she is going to have a dinner at her new friend's place um, that she's um, recently be- become acquainted with. Um, so a boy she's spending a little bit of time with, so she's heading around there for dinner. So... It's a little bit ominous, isn't it, Mark, that it happens to be Friday um, on a um, Valentine's Day um, that she's doing it? Yeah. I don't know what to say to you, Brendan. She's a wonderful young woman and she'll make wise decisions. She better, better. I was going to swear there for a minute, but she, um, I'm sure she will. She, um, she's got a sensible head on her and um, let's hope she keeps it that way and that... Um, she doesn't go all giggly and, and lovey-dovey when um, she gets the, the love bug, Mark. Um, so, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, so there we go. Um, vetgurus.com, the place to go. And also go there to click on our Patreon website link, which is patreon.com slash vetgurus. And you can throw us a bone, as we like to say, for the, for our new listeners. It's Maybe think about just giving us a, the equivalent of a cup of coffee as a donation, which you can do via Patreon. You know, give us $5 and it'll help support the podcast and help pay for all our ongoing costs, Mark. So, yeah, that's my blurb. Um, have you got in? I've actually got a review this week. You may or may not have seen, but. Um, I did. I was really keen to hear your review. I was just going to point out that no one should go to our webpage or Patreon site for a, a, a relationship or. Um, a relationship advice or just... Yeah, don't, don't swipe left or swipe right, Mark. Um, just scroll down um, and <laughs> scroll up is what you do on our website, yes. Um, yes, I have a review um, and uh, I presume you have not seen this film. I have not. I've, I've heard many things about it, but I'm very keen, as usual, to be guided by your your estimation. Well... Let's talk about what it's called, what it is. First, it is Jojo Rabbit, um, which is a 
Well, it's an interest in mix, isn't it? It's it's about a young boy. Um, well, the one line review uh, overview or synopsis of it, Mark, is a young boy in Hitler's army finds out about his mother is hiding a Jewish girl in their home. And it is classified as both a comedy and a drama and a war film, Mark. So, you know, potentially you put those things together and it's an absolute disaster. But um, my spoiler alert is that it was a very good film and I thoroughly enjoyed this. So I watched it with Annie and um, we um, had a great laugh about this. It was fantastic. I really loved it. And the director, Taika Waititi, um, the New Zealander, um, is, is plays Hitler. Um, in the in the actual film and um, and the two little boys um, and also the the young Jewish girl um, um, they're all fantastic um, so I thought it was I thought it was excellent Mark it was um, I don't really want to talk much about the plot of course. Um, and 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 obviously you'd, you'd think gee how, how does a comedy about Hitler work and there has been some bit of kickback up against it um, in some circles saying it's um, you know, it, it's um, it's it's not appropriate to have have this sort of film being produced. But the interesting thing is, I, I just heard today that one of the um, uh, a Jewish museum or or, or, or some sort of have decided to um, take the film on and, and and have it as a permanent sort of exhibition um, because they thought it was so good. Um, and I, I found it was it was actually yeah, it, it was exactly as described. It was a comedy. It was a dr- drama, and there were certainly tears happening in in the film both in the film and off the film those on the couch and um it's a little bit about the the war obviously and and hitler and just how absurd it all is it reminded me a bit like a you know monty python sort of um comedies and um i think mark um some people will not get it and some people will get it so you either hate or love this film i expect um so yeah so it's um earlier this week it uh won the best adapted screenplay Oscar. Um. Yes, the um, the script was was excellent. Um, the you know the the humour I I really enjoyed. It was sort of my style of humour there, Mark. And um, you know, not, and I love the wardrobe. Um, not just because the Jewish girl was hiding in the wardrobe most of the film, Mark, but um, the actual outfits were quite good as well. So you know, adding all of that up and the actual. Um, look of the film and there's a few twists in it as well and that's why I don't want to um, and a bit of a tearjerker there halfway through the film um, that I don't want to expose um, I reckon adding all that together it's a it's an 8.6 mark oh, I'd have to give wow. it 8.6 that is amazing that's such a good score that I hear that um, we're officially going to take take Taikei Waititi as an Australian, like as we do with most of those New Zealanders who are successful. So, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi for the Oscar. Yes, yes. And I I have seen, I didn't realise some of the actual other films and um, productions he's been involved in. Um, so, I think he was a guest director on um, the Star Wars um, serial, The Mandalorian, um, who was one of the directors for one of those episodes of that that particular series that was out recently. So he's and he's done a fair few things. And well, when you look at his list of achievements, he's um, done a lot of good stuff. So yeah, I, I I recommend go and see it. It's it's great. You'll get a really good belly laugh with it, and um, 
or you'll hate it, Mark. <laughs> so I'll be very interested to see what you think of it. Uh, I will, if you I'll get to see it. I will definitely see it now on your recommendation and let you know how it goes. Good. Um, so back on to um, the topic, which is veterinary aspects and veterinary science and news. Um, I'm going to take the first news story, Mark, because I found this one quite amusing and I think it's got a few a few of the important things. When you put them together, it's almost a perfect storm, isn't it? It's got coffee, it's got cute animals and it's got a rescue. Um, and it was only recently, a couple of a few days ago, a man used coffee to rescue three kittens whose tails were frozen to the ground is the, is the lead um, paragraph or the title of this one. And it's about a Canadian oil worker who has been hailed for using his leftover coffee to rescue three kittens he found trapped to a sheet of ice last week. And um, let me try and get his name right. Kendall Dip Switch. Dip. Uh, dip. <laughs> <laughs> let me say that again. Kendall Dewish um, has been performing some routine checks on oil wells in the Dayton Valley, Edmonton, when he saw what looked like a piece of trash left on a sheet of snow. And on closer inspection, he realised, and he was shocked to discover it was three terrified kittens whose tails were frozen to the ground. Now, I don't know how that would happen, Mark. How come they only had the tails frozen to the ground? And um, yeah, it was. Um, it's um, yeah, I don't quite work that out. Um, I can't work that out. But he quickly fetched his cup of coffee, and I thought, God, he's going to burn these um, poor kittens. Um, and he used the hot liquid to sufficiently melt the ice around the kittens' tails. And after the coffee had done its job, said the article, he was able to pull the felines free and take them home. And then he posted on social media in hopes of finding a forever family for the kittens. And, um, yeah, um, and I love his quote here. I took them home, fed and watered them. They look to be healthy and friendly. If any friends are looking to have a new addition in their family, let us know as they will need homes. And this is the line I love. All three look to be males, and we also gave them a dewormer. <laughs> so there you go. Um, I, lo- I love that. So good on him at least. He's, they're, they're dewormed and they have found a home since then. So, And there's a, uh, he's got a little video there. So he obviously videoed it after he um, defrosted their tails using his cup of coffee, Mark. So, yeah, that's my story. A bit of a, bit of a quirky one. But, um, yeah, we'll have the link to that video if anybody wants to see it. It's only a very short a number of seconds there um, and Alberta man uses lukewarm coffee to rescue frozen abandoned kittens is the title of the video there so there that's my story mark that's all I've got <laughs> that's a that's a very very um I, I, I do I, so you know my concern about um clickbait I just so many of these rescues and whatnot I just I don't know. I'm just a cynical old bastard and I worry about them. Anyway, my story has nothing to do with um, rescues and it has uh, not even a whole lot to do with any activity at all uh, because it's the story of the um, the Olm, the Olm known, uh, whose scientific name is Proteus anguinus. Um, uh, Olms, uh, they, act, they look to me like... Axolotls that someone's put through a spaghetti strainer and then trod on their head. Um, <laughs> they <they're laughs> and pulled out their eyes <laughs> and pulled out their eyes. They're cave salamanders uh, live in um, in the uh, 
dark, pitch dark underwater caves in Bosnia Herzegovina, and um, Herzegovina, and um, and they've been the subject of a, an extended study. Um, and one of the interesting things to come out of that study, which was published in the Journal of Zoology, um, was that they don't do anything. That um, of the animals that they monitored. Um, over the course of an eight-year study, um, they uh, they monitored, I think it was eight animals, um, and uh, seven of them moved less than 10 metres in the entire course of the study, and one individual um, only moved once um, after seven years. Um, so they are... Um, an extreme example of adaptation to a very unique environment. Um, they are thought to live more than 100 years. Their metabolisms are so slow that they may only need to eat, scientists estimate, um, to satisfy their caloric requirements. They may only need to have a meal once a decade, which is probably a very good thing given the caves in which they live a, a you know pauperate of prey animals um, and it's only every once in a while that um, you know something living wanders past the uh, the front end of the poor Olm um, and um, and so the, even more interesting is the infrequency with which they um, they get it together they they probably over the course of their 100 year life they probably only mate every 12 or 15 years um and so um geez that's that is a slow metabolism brendan um <laughs> they ain't doing much they ain't doing much and maybe that's why people when they meditate they just go om om because <laughs> does that where it comes from mark how do you spell ohms o-l-m-s Ah, okay. So I was getting it wrong when I was writing about people meditating. Um, I spelt it wrong the whole time. <laughs> um, the thing I found interesting was the implants they were using, the, the tags there, Mark, the visible implant elastomers, that they, which are basically coloured tags that they use um, for not just these species but also, you know, lots of small mammals, well, everything from mammals, reptiles. I don't know whether they use them in birds, Mark. You might be able to tell me whether that um, is the case or not. I don't um, think they do. I, don't, I can't yeah. say I'm familiar with them with birds. Yeah. Um, so they're really just a tag. Identify that they're very, as, as the name suggests, um, very vibrant um, and they remain visible through clear or transparent tissue. So I presume that's why they used it in the Om. You just wanted this article to say their name, didn't you? Um, Multiple times. Om. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, very interesting. But, yeah, gee, doing nothing for seven years, Mark. Um, um, well, we could say like, uh, I think we know a few people who are very much like that, but we won't mention them on air, will we? I, I, did, um, I, did, I was going to say that they're my spirit animal. And they led quite neatly, they segued, I, th I like this article because they segued quite neatly into our main topic, Brendan, which has to do with an absence of eyes. Yes, our main topic this week is a quick rundown on eye ablation. And I know we have, I looked through our previous episodes, Mark, uh, all 121 of them, I didn't listen to them all, I would have been 
bored absolutely off my brain um, doing that. And I did see that we have mentioned eye ablation previously um, in in several of them, but um, we haven't certainly covered it as a main topic. So that's what we're doing this week. And we will obviously mention or, 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 or concentrate on eye ablation in unusual pets, but we will talk a little bit about it in our common well, maybe not common in dogs and cats as well, Mark. So, um, let's kick it off with you know, how do you do many of these, Mark? Um, do, how many eye ablations would you do? Would you do one? I'd, I'd expect that your clinic would do one at least every month or two. Yeah, definitely, probably more frequently than that. It's a, it's a, um, surprisingly common procedure to do, and that that may reflect my abject ineptitude with um you know ophthalmology in general um but um but no I, I have a bit of a philosophical situation with these brendan um i if the animal is um suffering pain from the eye and not getting any vision from it i'm actually a little bit sort of i don't know i tend not to be very aggressive pushing surgical procedures but in that circumstance where the eye no longer where they're functionally blind and it hurts I almost feel like a an obligation to ensure that the source of pain is gone. And I know it's one of those things that um, clients, you know, the eye being the window of the soul and all that stuff, clients are, and the eyes are the first thing that clients look at. Um, it's often a huge hurdle to get over um, in a client to, um, to convince them that it is the right thing for us to do to remove that eye. I'm with you. And, um, we certainly, or I certainly, remove a, a fair number of eyes from them, and I think it. Well, it's like you describe it, it's a salvage procedure, isn't it? And um, I, I often um, don't bother trying to do um, medical treatment with a lot of them when, when we know we're not going to get there, and we've got no vision in the eye. So why not fix the problem, get rid of that eyeball, and um, if all goes to plan, and we'll talk about um, well, I overview the surgical procedure shortly, and then. Um, it's fixed, um, and we don't have to worry about that uh, ever again. And, and uh, we will talk about blindness in in all of these species, and which ones do or don't cope um, we, we, when we have um, no vision in both eyes. Mark, so we just remind me to mention talk about that if we haven't um, before the end of it. Um, sorry, I'm a little bit distracted as I'm talking here. The dogs are running around crazy here, so if I'm rabbiting on a little bit um the girls were just throwing the dogs out the back door they've just eaten and they're running doing laps outside um in front of me um so yeah but that's how it is with the vet gurus you get um live recordings and we don't edit much at all do we mark <laughs> not at all brendan this is as it comes it's raw and it's it's so by the sound of it yeah so why do we see these and and why do we do so many i think you've touched on one of them it, it's um the opt ophthalmological cases that have gone wrong um but i think with a lot of our unusual pets mark they often come into us where the eyes already cactus it's already um, no vision in there or we even have unfortunately in some of them some of those small mammals that i see the guinea pigs and the rabbits they come in with almost a, a ruptured eye it, it, it's not it's it's not rare for that to happen um, or to be brought 
to my attention um, by the client and that's a bit sad. So they're, they're often too far gone to be able to fix, fix medically and I'm sure you'd probably see the same there, Mark, with the unusual ones. So I think that's a point of difference between the unusual pets that have eye conditions. I, I see a much greater percentage of them like that than the dogs or cats. They're certainly brought in a lot lot earlier before the eye has, has, has lost their, um, lost its vision or, or any sort of traumatic wound. Um, do you have the same experience? Precisely the same. It's often the case that um, <clears throat> people will come in and the the um, globe has collapsed. It, as you said, it has maybe often social interactions. The guinea pigs are fighting and, and uh, a bite wound provides a penetrating wound and the, the, uh, the, the, the humour leaks out and the eye collapses. And often because the... The resulting pain leads to blepharospasm, um, and so the eye itself is concealed. Um, the owner doesn't see what's going on. They just see the fluid leaking as tears, and the eye must be sore, so they watch it for a few weeks. Um, and it's only, you know, maybe they get a glimpse for some reason or it's persisted for so long that they then bring them in. But it is very often the case that it's much, much more advanced than our more traditional pets um, and it's and it's diff- Go on. sorry, it's diff- difficult in those re- in the reptiles and the amphibians as well, isn't it? Because they may not be inspected um, closely um, every every day or several times a day, like you would do in the small mammals or your dog or your cat. Um, so um, once they get that snake out um, every few days or once a week or so, and they might finally have a little look at it and see that there's a problem with that eye. And the other difficulty with those aquatic animals is the difficulty of if we have an injury to the eye there and it's swimming around in that water that um, things can go bad pretty quickly. And it is the case with our, you know, particularly with geckos and uh, and snakes that um, they get a milky eye when they're about to shed and so people can be looking at that, go, oh, the animal's about to shed, not look at it for a week later, till a week later and, and then you do have a bit of a disaster on your hands. So they, they certainly present on average much, much more advanced for a variety of reasons. And we see a lot of the small mammals that the herbivores live rabbits and the guinea pigs with eye injuries mark with with and typically with that it's due to um, a bit of straw or hay or, or food material getting into the orbit there and causing an ulceration um, and some of those can end up being pretty nasty and we end up doing an eye ablation with those ones as well and, and it's so, typical of the they not just the foreign bodies but um if there's one piece of wire bent on their hunch they just like it's a magnet to the eye it must be fascinating to them no end and they just get closer and closer then one of the other rabbits touches them on the butt and they jump and um and they've got uh, you know their speed in the eye that it, it definitely is um uh, a very common thing to see horrendous injury so let's jump ahead a little bit and talk about the actual procedure so we've we've determined that this animal is in pain and probably continuous discomfort that won't go away even with medications and we decide to ablate that that eye mark um what's your what's your steps what do we start um doing in the process of going ahead to remove that eye do you find i find this um removing eyes a little bit messy sometimes but i quite enjoy the procedure and and, and I, I agree I, I, it's one of the procedures that if you look in the textbooks there's very precise you know um uh 
anatomic steps that are appropriate to take, um, particular muscles have to be sectioned at particular times. Obviously, now guinea pigs and rabbits, um, rats, um, that uh, particularly the rats and rabbits that have venous plexus, plexi, plexus, um, there's specific things that you've got to watch out for. But I often find that those um, diagrammatic anatomic guides are pretty useless to me once I actually get into the procedure. And and generally, I'm following the basic principle of uh, suturing the eyelids closed, using the closed uh, commissure as a point of tension, making an incision, that that incision through the skin but not through the conjunctiva. Um, that depends a little bit on the species and particularly with birds I uh, have to be a little bit um, more generous because of the large size of the orbit um, to the large size of the globe um, to make those incisions a little bit closer to the um, the edge of the bony orbit, and but also make sure I give myself enough space to to uh, close the the um, the wound afterwards, um, and then just gently dissect very closely around the globe. Um, get down to the sides. I often, I have to be honest and say that um, in many instances I'm able to identify specific muscles and I transect them appropriately, but in many of those surgeries, um, those muscles have atrophied or are unidentifiable and I just um, carefully dissect around um, using my curved mezzanbalms of a particular size um, until I get to the... Um, the, the um, you know, the optic stalk, the, the vessels and optic nerve. Um, and um, then uh, in some form or another, the, that tissue, generally with a hemoclip is my preferred technique now, and clamp that all together and and then just above the hemoclip, cut the, um, the damaged globe and remove it in its entirety. So it is, as you say, sometimes not, the beautiful anatomic dissection that I I love my surgeries to be. Yes, well, you've said it beautifully there, Mark. I mean, I do exactly the same thing, and you, it always looks lovely in those textbooks, doesn't it? And the the eye ablation one, yeah, you get a bit confused about which muscles are what and which bits to cut, and, that, and I do exactly the same. I just blunt dissect around and um, around that three sixty. Um, globe there and um, find the find the base there and try and clamp it off. Um, I sometimes use the hemoclips or lie clips as a version I use, but otherwise I just I have one particular really long um, pair of hemostats, really fine and, and bit of a curve right at the tip there, and I use those mark um, to try and clamp off. I must admit, sometimes I clamp off regardless of what technique and and or tie off. Um, and the tie or the clamp or even the, the logo clip um, comes off um, after I've transected their mark. But I think the key there is for for people who haven't done many of them is don't panic. And um, I just then put some swabs in the orbit there and a bit of pressure and just have a bit of a chat, tell a few jokes um, to the vet nurse who's helping me out with the anaesthetic. And um, once they've got sick of my dad jokes um, I pull the swabs out and, and usually the, it's all clotted there um, do you have any issues with 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 um, ligatures coming off oh, I think that there's two things I reckon that you know obviously the main artery comes with the um, optic nerve and so if you do catch it in your ligature or hemoclip or ligoclip you 
generally will affect pretty good um, hemostasis, but um, there definitely are times when either blood vessels to the the uh, muscles or surrounding structures um, or that uh, venous plexus um, in uh, rats and rabbits is uh, is damaged and bloody hell it does scare you when when uh, that orbit starts pooling um, uh, blood and starts swelling up but you're you have given wonderfully wise advice I believe because I do think like I've been in uh, in surgeries where I've frantically swabbed everything away um, then I can't help but just have a look and of course you remove the swabs and the damn puddle begins in the bottom of the hole in the skull that's the bony orbit um, and then you stuff your swab back in and you wait 10 or 15 seconds and pull it out again and of course there's no time for the damn thing to form a clot or um, for the body's own hemostasis to um, have the desired effect and it is as you say the op- the ideal thing to do is just pack it apply some gentle pressure and uh, and um, wait wait a couple of minutes Tell you know, if tell tell a joke, listen to the podcast, do whatever you can <laughs> yes. do, and let the clot form. Because as you said, nine times out of ten, you'll do that, pull it out, and there'll be perfect hemostasis at that point. Yes, and some of the species that we deal with, this, um, for instance, the rabbits, that that blood can quite clot a fair reasonably um, quickly with some of them. But, yeah, that, that and, and rabbits, again, that venous plexus that sits um, around the edges of the orbit um, where the sort of orbital bones are, um, you want to try and steer away from that because that, that tends to really ooze, doesn't it? And yeah. it's a fairly diffuse, really diffuse sort of um, plexus there. So we're talking not about um, the base of the where the optic nerve is. We're talking about superficially when we first make that incision over there over the eyelids or, or start dissecting down around the globe there. So so the good news with that is for those who haven't done a, an eye ablation on unusual pets is it, it is not um, it's not um, rocket science, isn't it, Mark? It, 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 it's be be careful, be be try and be as be be as meticulous as you can um, and um, slowly take your time, you know, don't, don't rush it and um, clamp off the base there and hopefully tie it off um, with, with whichever means you you prefer um, and then remove the globe. Um, and, yes, there are times when I've tried to remove that globe when, when a section of the globe is punctured or a section of the globe was not completely removed and then it does get a little bit fiddly to try and um, remove the rest of that globe there. Um, but I, I try and ensure that I do do that. Um, one of the other differences, Mark, Mark, and you might want to comment on this, is the re- do, what, what are your thoughts on the removing remove one or more of those accessory glands that are in the um, in the orbit there or around the eye there, and I'm especially talking about some of the species like rabbits that that have um, some pretty large um, glandular structures there. Do you leave them? Do you remove them? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I when I first started doing this, the the mantra from those people who taught me and who knew much more than I was that um, that you had to. That it was an abject failure if you left them behind because the damn things would uh, go about their glandular business secreting stuff endlessly. And if you didn't remove the buggers, you'd, you'd end up with uh, a slowly filling orbit with mucousy salivary gear in it um, until it blew up 
and tore your sutures apart and leaked out like the giant tears of uh, shame that um, I was shedding when it happened. But um, I, I, I find now that, um, and I, this is Mark's theory, Mark's theory when it comes to this is that we probably see those glands atrophy. I think there are some occasional cases. I've had one dog in particular that I did have to go back in and remove some secretory tissue that I, uh, uh, that even though I attempted to remove it in the first instance, I left a little bit behind. Um, but that really is the only time I've ever had to go back in. I think um, removing the blood supply from the back of the eye and taking away the structures onto which those glands secrete um, tends to mean that in the vast majority of cases, they stop doing their job. That's been my experience, Brendan. Well, I'd agree to a certain point with that. <laughs> I, th- I think you're spot on there. But, um, the reason why I'm being a little bit hesitant, I have had the odd one that does sort of have that end up having a bit of a discharge down the track, even when the sutures are removed. And it, it may have been one when I didn't remove all the glandular structures there. So as a general rule, I do try to, to if it looks obvious that I can remove the, the gland or glands, depending on the species, um, fairly easily and readily, I will do that. Um, but with these traumatised eyes, it's often difficult to identify the bits you need to um, in order to remove the glandular structures. So um, those one, I, I'm certainly leaving bits behind. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think for, I think, you're spot on for, for you know, um, for all of us in that, you know, I, I don't think it's mantra that we do have to remove it 100% of the time. Um, we'll probably get a, a few emails from <laughs> ophthalmologists saying the opposite and, and th- for rating this, Mark. I think you should where you can, but as you said, I think there are times where um, the structures are so um, mixed up that it's not easy to do. What do you reckon, Brendan? I've got I want your opinion on this other mantra. Um and I and I I I've, I've uh, have had a problem with this before, um, but um, when you're placing your ligature or your uh, hemoclip or whichever brand you use, um, that clamp, if you use, if you're lucky enough to have one of those perfect little hemostats, that's the right shape. Um, there's an emphasis to not apply tension to the stalk, to the optic nerve and associated structures, for fear of damaging the optic chiasm and creating blindness in the good eye. Um, I, I was going to say that this is a particular problem for uh, this procedure in birds because um, they have such bloody big eyes and because the the uh, amount that you can apply tension is very little before you do start to cause problems in the contralateral eye. Um is that is that a, a, um, a step in technique that you pay particular attention to, Brendan? I'm certainly aware of it, but I'm trying to think, and I'm not talking about birds of of the mammals and reptiles um, that I've re- ablated eyes, and we need to chat a little bit out about eye ablation in reptiles in a sec, too, Mark. Um, I can't remember any of them where I've affected the. The, the remaining eye mark and, and caused any problems there. Do, do you find it is a problem in, in birds? I, 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 only once I've had a problem in a bird that um, fortunately it wasn't a long-standing visual deficit. Um, and obviously birds are, um, unlike our 
our other small animals that we get to treat where vision is probably not one of their main, you know, their their sensory input doesn't depend heavily on vision. Birds do, much like us, 60 or 70% of their, maybe 80% of their sensory input is visual. Um, and so a little bit of damage goes a long way where maybe a little bit of damage in our other species um, ends up being inconsequential compared to the input of their other senses. I don't know, but definitely I had a bird that uh, um, that did have some trouble for two or three weeks and, um, and I went through a little bit of, um, you know, how we all do when we worry about surgery and I danced a little jig when that bird um, did a menace. So there you go. Uh. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's something you need to be aware of. And I think that just gets back to the not being rough with your surgery and, and taking your time there. Um, you know, it's, it's not all about getting the eye out within within a couple of minutes. It's, it's doing it properly, I think. And they're not necessarily long procedures anyway in eye ablation. And as I said at the start, I find them quite satisfying doing these surgeries. Um, so what do you do after you've removed that um, globe there, Mark? What, what's your thoughts about what do you do with what's left in there, that, that socket there? Um, do, you, do you pack it or not pack it? Um, um, what sort of closure do you do? And um, what's the home care you, recommend, um, you suggest to the client to, to look for and to do? Well, I did, at, uh, particularly with companion animals, I did very early in my career make an effort to obtain uh, sterile silicon implants because I was always scared about the um, the way that, um, that, you know, because it is such a critical thing for clients, how those eyes appear. Um, but to be honest, Brendan, I've moved away from, um, from that. I have had a couple of times where that um, awkward persistent hemorrhage from a um, from a, a, a particularly a rat jumps to mind a rat case that uh, I remember um, we did pack that with uh, one of the uh, hemostatic gel pads and left that in after the procedure um, and in that particular case we we uh, you know often I thought we'd would end up removing those at some point but that did not get removed and um, the rat went on to have uh, no problems whatsoever um, so as a general rule I don't um, uh, leave things packed in there um, I do try to do the dissection of the eyelids so that um, so that there's a fairly tough connective tissue structure that stretches over the the globe um, and is less likely to be sucked in by scar tissue and drawn down. I do have one famous chihuahua, um, and it always has to be a chihuahua, short head chihuahua, who has whose owner comes in each time for the annual vaccination and asks me if I've found an eyeball to fit into the very, very apparent socket that shocks all of her friends <laughs> that you can fit your thumb into, um, which she regularly does. So, so yes, um, I don't, uh, but I probably would. If I had a chihuahua like that again, I probably would find a silicon implant to stick in there so I don't have to deal with that in the years to follow. Yes, well... I haven't used those implants at all, Mark, um, in any of the eyes that I've, um, or the orbits that I've ablated there. And at one stage I was packing the eyes with, with sterile gauze. Um, and I know that was, I think it, many years ago, it was a bit of a, bit of a craze at, um, at one stage to put a bit of gauze in there and then you remove it later. Um, but these days I just, yeah, do a closure of that, those eyelids and then, um, away we go. Um, and yes, it will fill up with, 
with a bit of serum there and at some stage that may even sort of release itself or burst um, and then it settles back down again. Um, and obviously the other important thing we need to do is make sure they're full of pain relief um, during the hop, before, during and after that procedure as well. But apart from that, I think um, there's no other no other specific tips I'd like to mention apart from one I just remembered as I was saying that and that's with rabbits. <laughs> um, one of the difficult... One of the real challenges of eye ablations in rabbits, Mark, is is when we have tooth-root abscesses. Um, oh. We have a tooth-root at the back of the the orbit there pushing through, and that's the reason why we have a, a proptosed eye or an eye that needs to be removed. And those are absolute disasters, and more often than not with the client with one of those cases, I'm usually recommending euthanasia actually with a lot of them that they're very very difficult to deal with because you may ablate that eyeball but you still have a tooth root abscess at the back of that that rabbit orbit and rabbits have a big orbit there um, and you know they're a real challenge to deal with um, and some of those I've, I've tried techniques of of multiple packs of, of, of various compounds of um, you know antibiotic impregnated gauze etc into the eye socket um, and, and then removing it and replacing it multiple t- times to see if that will settle things down. But they're a bit of a disaster as far as I'm concerned, Mark, or at least in my hands. Have you had any luck with those? It's It'll come as no surprise to you, Brendan, that, that my experience is identical to yours, that once we have a significant – there must be something about the anatomy of the retrobulbar space which results in, I don't know, fissuring, uh, a dissection of the – growing abscess that comes from that tooth root and um, and definitely despite aggressive um, resection and um, and uh, as you said the use of antibiotic impregnated beads or um, one of the palaxima gels um, I, we have have had they've been disastrous and how they um, they regularly recover but within you know, weeks there, the the beautifully sewn, closed uh, wound starts swelling with the white pussy toothpaste material that is characteristic of rabbit abscesses. And um, you just don't seem to be able to get rid of all the bits once they get to that point. And I regularly start using comparisons to neoplasia once I get those retrobulbar abscesses because for me, they uh, they have that same, you know, effect on the rabbit and their clients need to treat them as if they they are dealing with a, a life-threatening cancer behind the rabbit's eye. Yes, and I think the abscesses are exact abscesses because it's more than one are, are very extensive and these days they're the cases that if I had one of those and the clients did want to try and go down the surgical route, I would be sending it off for a CT of the head to, to see the extent of those abscesses and often... I'd expect that um, they'd come back and then um, we could show them that CT um, from the referral centre and say, look, this is how disastrous it is and we need to stop or it's it's non, non-operable, um, this particular patient, yeah. So, yeah, same experience. Um, finally, Mark, before we close off, um, do, do you want to make a quick comment on the eye ablations in in reptiles, well, let's just keep it to one particular group, and that's snakes. Um, so, have you ablated eyes in snakes, and how um, do you find what's the difficulties or not of dealing with those? <laughs> um, yes, I have, um, and um, the uh, the difficulty with those that I find is the um, 
is the nasolacrimal duct. There's often reflux more frequently in um, in our snakes um, up that and up that tube. And obviously, people will be aware that you can get parasites that um, that enter the subspectacular space in an intact eye. And um, and my experience has been that um, that. There are times when that uh, removal of the eye ends up much more frequently than in other species being filled with um, serum or even secondary infection um, as a result of the access, the generous access that the um, retropulsion up the nasolacrimal duct, um, uh, up the, uh, yeah, the nasolacrimal duct uh, provides in that species is that was that the was that the direction you're headed in or do you have another thing about reptile eyes that i don't know no that was not what i wanted you to talk about mark at all um the difficulty of closure um of the skin there um because we haven't got um any loose skin um so trying to trying to close that um do close the um the orbit there or do you um, leave it open to granulate over <laughs> now you're just leading me like um you know I, you do this <laughs> you do this you, you're one of the examiners for the college is this the way that you you um uh do these tests you like i haven't examined for years Mark. that's a bit of a furphy there yes <laughs> um no no uh, it, it definitely uh um all attempts are made to close the wound if that's possible. And there are some particular circumstances where you can generate enough uh, laxity in the in the wound to get closure. Um, but um, but certainly uh, the vast majority of them, those that skin around the eye is fixed in place, and you don't have eyelids because they're um, snakes, and so you uh, you have to let them granulate in. Yes, well, good answer, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Very good answer there. Yes, um, but I find them quite um, fun to do as well, even though um, they're, they're a, they have a, a different sort of challenge with the mark, don't they, with those. Um, so, yeah, um, I said that was going to be the final thing, but no, we need to <laughs> briefly talk about one more thing, and that is animals. Let's just stick to unusual pets, and you might be able to hear one of my dogs in the background that wants to come inside. Um, what do you think about our unusual pets that have no vision at all um, about coping, other particular groups or species that cope very well um, with no vision and, or, or not? Oh, me, me, me. I know the answer to this one. Um, yes. The, 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 my birds. My birds are, are much, much more um, uh They have a much more difficult recovery from this procedure than, uh, than our birds. You know, as we said before, most of our small mammals have a heavy uh, responsibility in their nervous system for other things, and their vision is ancillary. Whereas birds are, um, are, are heavily dependent on their vision, and taking away their bilateral vision and allow losing their sense, their depth of field, their ability to look around half of them, their loss of awareness of where predators are changes their um, ability to move in the, their enclosure, changes their confidence. Um, and they definitely, my birds need a much more aggressive post-operative care focused on uh, sorting those things out, Brendan. So do you have some of those birds that you would suggest to some clients that, hey, um, 
your bird has become totally blind that maybe we should think about quality of life or you try and persist with all of them and say, look, um, that bird will be able to cope without vision long term. We always talk about the quality of life uh, issues and we definitely spend a lot of time um, dealing with uh, um, dealing with the things that the bird, you know, because there is a difference between what many clients perceive are the bird's issues and what their real issues are. So we sort of spend a fair bit of time uh, emphasising the real problems. Um, The interesting thing I find is that almost all the clients that get to that point, we've probably got, I don't know, a dozen clients who have um, absolutely blind birds and they, um, you know, have a safe place for them. They keep their food bowl in the same place. They um, have a series of training measures to make sure those birds have um, quality of life and activity beyond um, just sitting in the corner of the cage. Um, They ensure that they're familiar with... um, you know, everything that is in their cage. They uh, do special things to, if they introduce a new texture or whatever, to be there as the bird becomes familiar with it. Um, But it's surprising how many people do go ahead with uh, um, keeping the bird um, uh, after they've had something that results in an absolute loss of vision. Yes. Well, I suppose it's fairly similar or can be similar in our other species, Mark. And the only final comment, and I keep saying final and we've gone way over the time we said we would, would be that I think you have to look at the individual animal as well in that some cope very well and some don't cope at all. Um, the analogy I'd use would be limb amputation in some of these small mammals. Some of them um, cope beautifully and they, they never look back and others you, you technically you remove a leg perfectly well um, and it just doesn't cope on, on two or three legs or how many legs it's got left. Um, so I think you need to, it's part of the, of the discussion with the client there um, as far as do you think this animal is going to cope with it and some of them, you need to just wait and see if they do cope after you've ablated that eye or eyes and um, it doesn't have any vision anymore and it, and it may be coping quite well. So so it is something that we need to chat and think about before we just jump in there and and remove those eyes is, is what we're getting at with that. And um, I think Mr Outro is jumping in, so thank you all for listening this week and we will talk to you all next week. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time